The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you news from across the battlefront, discuss recent developments in drone warfare and its implication for armies around the world, and we analyse a new report on torture in the occupied regions of Ukraine. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 2nd of August, one year and 159 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, senior tech reporter Gareth Caulfield, foreign reporter Verity Bowman, and former tank commander and Telegraph columnist Hamish de Bretton-Gordon. Just a note from us, this episode contains descriptions of graphic violence and cruelty. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So Russia has continued its policy of attacking grain infrastructure in the wake of withdrawing from the uh, Black Sea deal. So last night, Russian drones attacked and damaged ports and grain storage facilities in Odessa, so on the south coast, southwest coast of, uh, of Ukraine here, and also caused serious damage at the Ukrainian port of Ismail on the Danube River. This is that was according to Reuters, although there is very dramatic social media footage you can see of that blast. Now that facility in Ismail on the Danube, we're, so we're now 100 k's southwest of Odessa in that bit of Ukraine that sits south of Moldova. Dover and is literally across the river from Romania, a NATO member, don't forget. Now, the port has served as the main alternative route out of Ukraine for grain exports since Russia reintroduced its de facto um, blockade of, of the Black Sea ports in mid-July. Now, in response, Klaus Johannes, who's uh, Romania's president, said in a tweet this morning, Russia's continued attacks against Ukrainian civilian infrastructure on the Danube in the proximity of Romania are unacceptable. These are war crimes and they further affect Ukraine's capacity to transfer their food products towards those in need in the world. Okay, now, then in a a completely reasonable statement yesterday from uh, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov, he said uh, Moscow is ready to return without delay to the grain deal, but after the conditions for Russia are fulfilled. I mean, look, you can understand his frustration. There's poor old Russia desperately trying to do the right thing over the grain issue, but stymied at every turn by nasty old Ukraine who forced it out of the grain deal and, and forced it to fire missiles at the silos. I mean, come on, look, this is yet again the language of, of an abuser. Everything will be fine as long as you do what I want. Why are you making me hurt you? I mean, I'm sorry if these words echo with any listeners. I don't mean in any way to make light of issues such as abuse, but we need to be clear about what this this Russian system is and who these who these people are. Now, there are no reported casualties in these attacks, but it does once again bring attention to the issue of escalation, especially in light of the recent drone attacks in Russia. I think there's two things we need to think about here. First, having failed to knock Ukraine out of the war with general attacks on civilians and the campaign against energy infrastructure last winter, Russia is now going for the grain, which is an attack not just on Ukraine, but obviously has global implications. So they're attempting to wage total war on Ukraine, knowing the 
collateral impact their actions will have on some of the poorest countries in the world. That is escalation. Secondly, Russian forces with an established track record of not caring about where their missiles go, have fired rockets with, I'd estimate, a better-than-average chance of hitting a NATO country. So if they consider that just part of warfare and in no way escalatory, I don't think we should worry about Ukraine taking the fight to the Kremlin. On that last point, so in response to Ukraine's alleged recent drone attacks on Moscow, A U.S. State Department spokesman yesterday said we neither encourage nor enable strikes outside Ukraine's borders. But as we have said many times, it is up to Ukraine to decide how to conduct this war. It has been Ukrainian civilian infrastructure that has been targeted over and over. Ukrainian citizens have been murdered in this war. Okay. elsewhere last night, more than 10 Russian drones were shot down during overnight attacks on Kiev and elsewhere. This is from Ukrainian officials. So Sergei Popko who's the head of Kyiv's civilian, uh, sorry, city military administration, said groups of drones entered Kyiv simultaneously from several directions. All air targets were detected and destroyed in time by air defence. He said it was was the Iranian-made 136, Shahid 136-131 drones. Debris hit many different areas of the city. Kyiv's mayor, Vitaly Klitschko, he said the attack had caused damage in multiple districts, but said that no one killed or wounded. And then there's a report today in the Kyiv Independent that's quoting Ukraine's Southern Operational Command that says Russian jets fired missiles on Monday at Snake Island. And that's the third such attack on Snake Island this month. No casualties reported there. You may remember President Zelensky visited Snake Island earlier this month to mark 500 days of Russia's full-scale war. And then finally, Putin's trapped and compliant man in Belarus, who's cosplaying at being the leader of an independent country, the uh, so-called President Alexander Lukashenko, has claimed Wagner fighters would have smashed up, his words, smashed up Polish cities without his intervention. So this comes from Belarusian state news agency Belta. No more appropriate term than that. Lukashenko said Poland should pray that we're holding on to Wagner and providing for them. Without us, they would have seeped through and smashed up Rezhov and uh, Warsaw in no small way. So they shouldn't reproach me. They should say thank you. Great. Now, that obviously comes amid tension, growing tension between Poland and uh, Belarus. Poland recently shifted more than a thousand troops to its border after Wagner moved in. And yesterday, after Lukashenko's comments about uh, that I mentioned earlier, Poland's defence ministry said it was sending additional forces and resources, including combat helicopters, to the border region after an alleged incursion by two uh, Belarusian helicopters, MI-24 and MI-8. Now, whether or not it was... I mean, Belarus have denied it, whether or not it was Belarusian... Whether or not it happened, Poland said it did. But uh, Belarus say it didn't. I know who I believe. Whether it was Belarus Air Force or Wagner, we don't know. Warsaw summoned Belarus's charge d'affaires to provide an explanation, and Minsk denied it ever happened. The defence ministry uh, said Poland had earlier accepted no incursion took place, and then, and this is a great quote, changed their narrative in the evening, apparently after consulting with their overseas masters, which I think is particularly fine language and makes it, it's clear exactly how independent Belarus is these days in case there was any lingering doubt. But I'll pause there, David. Thank you very much for that, Dom. And we'll come back to you later, I'm sure. Can I go to Verity Bowman? Verity, thanks so much for your time and for joining us. There's a new report out on 
torture um, committed by well, Russian troops in Ukraine uh, from a team of war crime investigators. You've been reading this and you've written it up for The Telegraph. What does it say? Well, so the overarching finding from the report is that almost 50% of people who were held in these notorious Kherson detention centres during the occupation of the area were subject to torture, and that includes genital mutilation. So what they've found so far are 35 confirmed torture chambers and in Ukraine's south, and this was occupied between March and November 2022. These findings are now being investigated by Ukraine's Office of the Prosecutor General, and early findings indicate that the victims, half of which are believed to be civilians, were suffocated, waterboarded, severely beaten or threatened with rape by Russian soldiers and collaborators. And they've already collected the testimony of some 36 people who witnessed or were subject to genital electrocution. Other people also mentioned threats of genital mutilation and at least one victim was forced to witness the rape of another detainee by a foreign object. Now the report's out. What do other lawyers and investigators who've also read it, what do they make of the findings? So the main person I've been speaking to about this is the human rights barrister Wayne Jordash KC, who was helping coordinate the investigations alongside the OPG. And what he said that really stood out to me was that the actions of the Russian military and Kherson detention centres basically amount to genocide. He said that it was consistent with a cynical and calculated plan to humiliate and terrorise millions of Ukrainian citizens in order to subjugate them to the will of the Kremlin. Mr Jordash and a few other members of the team said it was likely that even now the true extent of the torture could be much worse than we actually believe because so much is left to be investigated. Could we talk a little bit about the the victims in this? Who were the people detained and why were they taken? Well, it was such a a wide range of people being taken at this point. So the first people, you know, would be a little bit more what you'd expect. It'd be those with any connection to the Ukrainian state or Ukrainian civil society. So those are the people that are journalists, activists, teachers, civil servants, and they were both male and female. But what we have found are reports emerging of locals being imprisoned for as little as having, you know, maybe pro-Ukrainian content of their phones on social media. But in some cases, they were even detained for no charge at all. And what the OPG has found is that over half of those detained in these facilities were identified as civilians. There's certainly a sense in this report and in your article that this violence, torture and the cruelty shown by Russian troops was both systematic and systemic. To what extent would you agree with that? I mean, I definitely agree with this. These detention centres were not set up accidentally and they certainly targeted Ukrainians on a large scale for many actions deemed a minor crime or for nothing at all. It isn't just a handful of detention centres we're talking about, but already 35 in such a smaller region of Ukraine. There are many signs... um, of torture investigations who found numerous detention centres across the region. And this really demonstrates the sheer scale of the system Russia had in place. In one of the main findings, there were 17 cases of genital electrocution that were linked to just one senior Russian commander alone. And the experts we've spoken to have confirmed that the cruelty was systematic. Mr. Jordash, who is very experienced, he's practised for over 20 years in international human rights and humanitarian law fields. And he said that the level of calculation and cynicism by Russia was something that he's actually never seen before. Verity, is there anything more you'd like to add to your reporting on this? 
I think the main thing I would like to say is that we're in such early days of finding out what actually happened in these detention centres and already the evidence is so overwhelming. But we've got a lot left to find out and I think that these investigations will be going on for a very long time. Faraday, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Dom and Verity. Can I go to Gareth Caulfield and Hamish Bretton-Gordon? Last week, we spoke about the drone war in Ukraine. We interviewed Svetlana Moronets, friend of the podcast, who's actually currently in Ukraine at the moment. Uh, Svetlana's a journalist at The Spectator. She talked to us about some of the things she'd seen in Ukraine, going to sort of drone uh, drone fight club with the, the Ukrainian army training recruits to fly drones. Um, you've been um, writing and looking at the use of drones in the British Army and it's quite an involved, quite an interesting story and I think shows a lot about how the war in Ukraine has changed how other militaries are thinking about fighting their wars. So Gareth, can I go to you first? Could you just give the outline of, of the story you wrote? Absolutely. Thanks, David. So the story I wrote, the story I broke actually on Monday, um, was that an 8th uh, British Army watchkeeper drone has crashed. Um, now that's in itself, quite a, quite a revealing little, little headline there, because the, the army has 54 of these Watchkeeper drones, and these are intended as a sort of battlefield eye in the sky at aerial surveillance for the Royal Artillery. However, the Watchkeeper drone program has been quite troubled. Now, eight of these things have crashed. None of them have crashed in a war zone. Certainly none of them has crashed as a result of enemy action. All of these are due to a variety of factors. Some of them in the early days were down to poor design. Some of them were down to... You know, over-ambitious trials, flying them into bad weather. And the crash of that eighth drone has kind of shed fresh light on what is now a 1.35 billion defence procurement exercise. We're spending great sums of money buying these these drones, which are specified in the sort of you know, late 2000s, early 2010s, for the sorts of wars that we were currently fighting at the time, not wars as they are fought today, however. Now, we have seen... Uh, in the Ukraine context, of course, that there's extensive use being made of small drones. Yeah. And when I say small drones, I mean sort of handheld things going up to the size of DJI Mavics and Phantoms, perhaps, you know, the sort of larger quadcopters, octocopters, and so on. Watchkeeper, however, is the size of a light aeroplane. And for those of you listening who are, who are aviation-minded, maybe the size of a little Cessna, the sort of thing that a trainee pilot would learn to operate first in his career. So we have the situation where there's this this, very expensive program being continued. Many of these aircraft have crashed in British service. Uh, None of them, I think apart from four, have ever been deployed to a war zone, let alone achieved any useful operational effect. And the question is now being raised in, in Parliament and Westminster whether this is a wise use of public money. We look to the Ukrainian experience, we see extensive use of small light drones, which cost a few hundreds to a few thousands of pounds. And then we look at Watchkeeper, which costs something like 5.2 million per airframe. And we say, is this the way that, that we should be continuing? Is this a wise use of British public resources? And are we adequately learning the lessons our Ukrainian allies have taught us? Well, thanks very much, Gareth, for that introduction. Hamish, can I bring you in there? What would you like to add to that? And um, what do you think you've learnt as a former military man yourself from the Ukrainian use of drones? Well, good afternoon, everybody. And I don't want to sound like sort of jack of all trades. I know I comment on tanks and chemical and, and nuclear warfare on this pod and in the paper, but I, I, I feel I have a bit of responsibility behind this because one of my last jobs in the military, I was the assistant uh, chief 
ISTAR, Intelligence Surveillance Target Acquisition and Reconnaissance, the sort of departments who look after drones in Afghanistan back in 2008. And um, just a tiny bit of background when we when I started off in 2008, actually, we were using a Nimrod aircraft. This is something, a der- military derivative of a Comet jet about the size of a 737 with 12 people on it. It had a camera, I think it was called an MX-15, which was basically doing what these handheld drones do now. Take pictures of, of what you're looking at, the targets you're looking at. But then things obviously have shrunk down. But also at the time, we had the precursor to Watchkeeper, something called Hermes 450, which was an off-the-peg Israeli drone, which looked remarkably similar to Watchkeeper. And then Watchkeeper was bought in. Ostensibly, it it has a camera on it. There were plans to weaponize it. And and without the history of drones, obviously, the RAF have something called a Reaper drone, which is slightly bigger than than a Watchkeeper, flies slightly higher, and, and is armed with Hellfire and other bits and pieces. And I think Gareth's piece really frames very well perhaps some rivalry between the Army and the RAF, why we, we then got two fairly similar drones. But the key thing to me was, of course, you know, Watchkeeper back in 2008-9 when it was being conceived, was conceived for counterinsurgency in the clear skies over Afghanistan and Iraq. The Taliban and and Al-Qaeda had no air defence to talk about. So these things can cruise around, and as we've heard, the size of a Cessna, but with, with cameras taking pictures. What I then had a time with the Peshmerga, the Iraqi Kurd military, in the fight with ISIS, and that's the first time we saw these small drones that, that, that ISIS were using to drop hand grenades and other bits and pieces, and it struck me how effective they were, because we couldn't we only had small arms ammunition we we couldn't take them down so it it it's a classic military procurement conundrum and this is not unique to the british military something conceived in 2008 wind forward to 2023 when we're now seeing that drones are you know are perhaps one of the most important military capabilities on the battlefield in ukraine but but instead of being the size of a cessna they're the size of a coffee table sort of thing and, and doing the same sort of job. And, and the quantity, tens and tens of thousands. The, the figure that I find very compelling on the drone um, side is that virtually every artillery round fired by the Ukrainian side has a drone the other end spotting for it and and redirecting the fire. So, in fact, artillery that traditionally is not a precision weapon is being turned into a precision weapon by these drones. So I can't remember the exact cost, whatever it is, 1.2 billion we're spending on Watchkeeper for 50 drones. I, I think I, I agree with the tone of Gareth's piece, and uh, and I suppose I, I, I should do, because we, we had a long chat about it, that this needs to be be looked at, because whether whether a big slow and these things only go about 70 miles an hour and 20,000 feet whether it is is what to be done uh, and with, without wanting to cover any of the ground you covered yesterday i think the whole air defense thing is is critical here interesting to note that that the russians are only shooting down about 50% of of drones particularly those ones going towards moscow where ukraine's now up to 80 90% so i think i think the dynamic has changed the challenge is that military procurement takes so long to catch up 
What Ukraine is able to do, of course, is to buy off the shelf and also be supplied by, by NATO and all the rest of it. That's, that's something that British military procurement has found it very, very difficult to do. The, the Defence Review refresh that has just been published, of course, talks a, a lot about drones. But whether we are going to be able to learn effectively those, those lessons and have an impact, who, who knows? But I, I personally think that Watchkeeper is, is going to be challenged in a warfighting context that we're seeing. And, and when we say war fighting, fighting between two sides, states, as it were, with, with everything involved, tanks, aircraft, artillery, etc. What, what its utility is going to be, yeah, sure, for counterinsurgency and policing. Yeah, it, it, it has a role to play. But yeah, it needs a lot of thought, I think, on this one. Thanks, Amish. Yesterday, I spoke to, well, the interview went yesterday to, uh, with Christopher Miller from the FT. And he spoke about how the exchanges now between, for example, the British Army and the Ukrainian Army in terms of training actually start to go both ways. That, of course, the Brits and other NATO allies are, are training the Ukrainians to do certain things, but they're actually learning quite a lot from uh, the Ukrainians as well. There's not, it, It's very much an, a, a relationship of equals, which I thought was a very interesting point. I mean, I'd ask both of you, do you think that the use of drone warfare and the way that the Ukrainian defense of their country and how they pioneered that and experimented with that is a, is a good example of that? And also, what surprised you about how they employ drones? Oh, well, Hamish here. Well, let, let, let me go first. I, I think absolutely. Uh, fairly early on in the war, I, I was asked what, what, what advice I could give to tank commanders in Ukraine. And I, and I said pretty much none. It, it would be absolutely the other way around. So I think I think in the in the early days and what we have been doing, we the British military training Ukraine in the basic way to fight the art of fighting at, at, at the low level. But the way that they have been so flexible and the test and adjust, as it were, in the use of these things, we have a, an incredible amount to learn, I think. And the ubiquitous, the number of these drones being used, I, I, I just think the command and control, that's where you have battalion and company and platoon sort of commanders trying to control all the various assets that they have. If you've only got one watchkeeper drone out there working for you, the the control of it's quite easy. If you have got 5,000 smaller drones uh, controlling that, making sure that they're not all doing the same thing is very complex. And I think that that is something that we really need to learn. I know the British military and and the procurement of it gets a real kicking, but there are a lot of really bright men and women in the British military who who are looking at these things. There's a lot of of sort of conferences and research going on to make sure that we absolutely learn the right lessons coming out, out of Ukraine. And if you could, the amount of fighting that they are doing or have done is is phenomenal in my 25 year career in the british military i i deployed on i think 11 operational tours but in the sum of it would not add up to the sort of 14 months of a say a a, a tank battalion commander in ukraine in experience if that if that doesn't make sense so um, to, to me, it, it's the way that they are using it in the intelligence surveillance piece, getting all the information, target acquisition, in other words, 
finding those targets and being able to prosecute those targets and otherwise put some fire down on it accurately, to me, is 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 really a change. And what one just hopes, if money was no object, of course, we'd be changing our military all the time to reflect what we're learning. But life's just not as simple as that. But um, yeah, it's it's but also it's good for now. What what we what we must keep doing is keep evolving because the next conflict, no doubt, will be slightly different. Over. Thanks, Hamish. Dom, I know you've got some thoughts on this as well. I would just add on the comment Hamish made a little earlier on about cots, so commercial off the shelf. I think one of the lessons that's coming out of of the uh, the war in Ukraine, especially through the lens of drone the drone warfare, is how cots or the military procurement systems more broadly are really being examined now. So as Hamish said, a lot of these things are cots, commercial off the shelf, as in you can just go and buy them down the shops kind of thing. And that's absolutely fine. That is a perfectly valid and legitimate military procurement strategy. A, a country can go to the open market and buy stuff. Now, you have to understand that a country, the, the country that manufactures these things, be it tank, jet fighters, submarines, what have you, they're not going to sell their Premier League kit so commercial off the shelf, you could get some very, very, very capable military uh, capability stuff, but it's not going to be the best possible stuff in the market or, or not in the market, but on in the world at that time. So you better hope if you go for a COTS strategy, which you save all your kind of investment in research and development, what have you, just buy the, your money, go straight to the stuff on the shelf. But you better hope that your enemy hasn't hasn't got anything slightly better because otherwise you're you're matched and so cots is a is a very good a very valid strategy but it does have drawbacks as opposed to designing something yourself breaking physics coming up with something absolutely you know brand new that is uh, that is that is unrivaled anywhere in the world now put that together with the recent uh, report from rusi the think tank here in london royal united services institute that said at, at its peak Ukraine losing 10,000 drones uh, a month. I mean, a, a staggering, phenomenal, staggering figure. Um, they can do that. They are, I wouldn't say happy, but they are content to do that, to lose things, to use use them and lose them, knowing that, that so many of them are going to be either shot down or come down because of electronic warfare or what have you. But if, you, if they are cheap and cheerful and people are sending them, they are buying them, they are cots, then that might that might work. So the question you have to ask is, what is the special source that goes into the the thing that you are developing. We're talking about Watchkeeper here. Look at the look at the numbers. Hamish said, I think what was it, 1.2 billion for a program that's going to produce 50 odd airframes. So that that had better be pretty blooming special to to make that investment and the time worth it. Because I, I mean, I don't I don't know what the special source is with Watchkeeper. Maybe it's more than just eyes and ears in the sky. Maybe it's a synthetic aperture radar, something like that. You can see through cloud and so on and so forth. But my question is, and Gareth and I were chatting about this yesterday. If you if you went for a co- in something like drones that when you just wanted to see stuff and be able to call in artillery fire or any other kind of cue another another part of the military machine, do you lose by 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 not going for the special source? Do you lose more than you gain by just having thousands of these things that you can use and you can spread about? And the training burden is tiny because you just lob them in the air and and drive them like a remote control. Well, they are literally a remote control device. So. 
in in an area like drones, I wonder if we are we are seeing how warfare, peer on peer, major state on state warfare, not when we're not when we're in a counterinsurgency campaign when the the sky is our own type thing, but you are in a peer on peer conflict. I just wonder if if you, this war has shown that something like drones, you really have to think very very carefully about investing huge sums of money in very long programs that take a long time to turn up and may well be out of date by the time they arrive. Vice just having thousands of bits and pieces to go right now um i mean a question for, to be discussed at, at length but what's a military there to do It's to be combat effective and as lethal as it can and i just wonder if by having thousands of cheap and cheerful drones that are cots and i accept is as good as the thing that the enemy could buy are you going to be more effective and more lethal because you can get more of them into the hands of more men and women creating death and destruction on the enemy um, than going for a very small number of exquisite pieces of kit that take a long time to arrive but may have some super-duper special part to it. Question, I don't know. That's a that's a live discussion. Gareth and I were having it yesterday. It's one for, one for the public. It will roll on, but I think that's one of the most salient lessons that have come out of this war uh, for me. Thanks, Dom and Hamish. Can I go back to Gareth? Let's go back to the drone war in Ukraine. Can you talk about some of the research you've seen recently about some of the, the new things that you've seen emerging there? Yes, absolutely. So moving along from Watchkeeper, but still on the related topic of drone warfare, as both Dom and Hamish have just discussed at length now, we're seeing an extensive use of commercial off-the-shelf COTS drones. Uh, we're also seeing there's two different strands here. We're seeing an increasing shift towards what you might call DIY drones, which are 3D printed components. And anywhere you can set up a 3D printer, which is you know, the space of a, of a desktop, a table, kitchen table, for example, uh, you can then print replacement parts for damaged drones and bring them back in the servers. You can print the major components, which you can make to you know, the high-tech bits, the motors and guidance systems and so on, which can be brought up to the front lines by existing logistic trains. You can do all kinds of very interesting things, which mean you can deploy drones much faster to the front line, but also to an extent lessens your dependence even on the open market when it comes to these COTS drones. And the other interesting thing we've seen, this is a, it's a, bit of, a bit of research pulled together by a chap I know called Matt Moss. He runs a blog called The Armourer's Bench. Matt's a sort of general sort of small arms, he won't mind me saying this, bit of a small arms geek. And he has put together some very interesting stuff, which is culled from footage, live footage from some of these um, first-person view drones, uh, the ones with cameras mounted on them, which indicates that we're starting to see a kind of First World War-style aerial combat, drone-on-drone emerging. Now, the, the sort of the um, conceptual evolution is pretty simple. Both sides, as, as both Dom and Hamish have discussed here, have, are using drones extensively as aerial reconnaissance platforms are using them to see over that hill or that building in front to get um, get eyes on for you know, supporting artillery strikes and, and so on and so forth but of course the other side are doing exactly the same thing and the question has arisen already what do you do if you're a drone operator or you're on the ground operating a drone and you see an enemy drone coming up well of course you, you do your best to try and take out the enemy drone so we're seeing now the emergence of some very interesting videos showing drone on drone aerial smashes you know, we're seeing drone operators trying to, to tip over on enemy drones we're looking at them bouncing on them from height and smacking into them in the hope of destroying rotors or damaging key systems have to flip the thing over and send it hurtling back to the earth and these these engagements actually have strong historical parallels as as mr moss points out with the first world war uh, the sort of dawn of aerial warfare come came about with exactly the same sort of thing going on aircraft early aircraft being used for aerial recce for that sort of artillery spotting mission. 
And then, of course, the pilots and observers in those aeroplanes would see enemy observers, and they would say, well, what can we do about it? And the evolution of that was first they began carrying you know, rifles and pistols and, and machine guns. Then they began strapping the machine guns to the aeroplanes. Then new aeroplanes were built with the machine guns integrated into the design. And then many decades later, we, we started putting guided missiles on the aeroplanes. So we may be at the dawn of a, a sort of history repeating itself almost, to slightly mix the metaphor there, as we see drone-on-drone warfare becoming a, an emerging theme or an emerging topic. But of course, returning back to the, the Watchkeeper story very briefly, we're not going to see that happening with Watchkeeper anytime soon because, of course, the thing is not only unarmed, but as a 1.35 billion defence programme, I, I also revealed that it is still not cleared to fly in inclement weather. That is, it is a visual meteorological conditions only. So, uh, provided it's not cloudy and not raining, you can fly it. But that's not a consideration which which should affect the sort of small homemade DIY drones, the FPV drones or indeed the drones which are now being used to smack into each other in the hope of uh, knocking the enemy's opposing eyes out of the sky, as it were, David. Thank you very much. Let's go to, let's go to Hamish to Breton. Gordon, Hamish, uh, you wanted to speak a little bit about Dmitry Medvedev today. What, what have you been reflecting on? Yes, Medvedev. There was a very good piece in the paper today, I think it by Svetlana Moretz, talking about Medvedev's latest sort of outburst uh, saying that if the counteroffensive was successful, the Ukraine counteroffensive, Russia would have to use nuclear weapons. Uh, and the theme of her piece is, is actually that the world knows that Putin's too scared to use nuclear weapons. Now, Medvedev has, this is the 60th time he has threatened the use of nuclear weapons. So I hadn't realised that he had a propaganda role. And he has had a heck of a fall from grace. He was prime minister not so long ago, and now he's deputy head of the Security Council. And he is his liking of vodka is well known. And if you read any of his tweets, particularly about the nuclear piece, you'd have thought that he's had quite a, quite a lot of that um, vodka. But um, he, he, he sort of goes on to say that, uh, and, and, and I think the, the assumption is that, that he is suggesting that the um, conventional warfare that Russia is using is failing and not being a success, so, and thinks that by threatening nuclear, that is going to, by some way, um, make the West withdraw uh, and uh, make Ukraine stop fighting. But really, from the get-go, it's had the ex- exact opposite effect that I think everybody has agreed. And I, I wrote a paper for the American government last year about this, that actually there is no way that Russia would go nuclear Armageddon uh, into continental ballistic missiles. Yeah, cer- certainly Medvedev would never be in that um, in that fire chain. When it comes to tactical nuclear weapons, which is what he's talking about here, these are the smaller battlefield ones that presumably he wants to drop on Crimea if they lost Crimea. Well, the, there is there was a lot of talk coming from him that they'd move some to Belarus so that they'd be in range. I'm pretty sceptical if those tactical nukes ever ever reach Belarus. Uh, and even if they did, the, the firing chain, the sequence that would need to go through, um, one can get from open source comments from US and UK intelligence in particular, that these things have been very, very carefully looked at. And I'm sure that they would be interdicted uh, and, and un- unable to fire. I, I think in his propaganda role, 
propaganda has, bo- which Russia are experts at, well, experts in in quantity, perhaps rather than quality, but but it's got to be plausible. But but generally, what he says, and particularly in the tone he says it in his tweets and elsewhere, just leads him to be completely implausible and really just some drunk ranting in the dark. So I, I, if I was Putin, I would blame him for really destroying one of my Trump cards because exactly as Arna's piece says, we all know that Putin can't go nuclear. So when his, his out-of-control attack dog starts talking about it most of us have a bit of a bit of a chuckle so so i think that's i think her piece is excellent and it really again underwrites that that the russians have nowhere to go apart from throwing more quantity into the meat grinder and i know how terrified people are on the nuclear piece i i I do an awful lot of briefings for for foreign companies and others who who have people in ukraine and also to people civilians in ukraine trying to Try well. First of all, telling them what to do if, in the event which I'm saying is not going to happen, does happen, so that they can survive. But more importantly, trying to reassure people that you know, rantings from people like Medev are completely hollow and without substance. Thank you very much for that, Hamish. Hamish, I don't know if you're yet on one of these sort of sanctioned lists from the Russian Foreign Ministry, but I definitely check check your name on that on that list next time, mate. But thank you very much for that, Dom. Final thoughts. Final thoughts. Right, I've been. Um, I'm watching the, the old grain issue, not not the grain deal, but Russia's very obvious attack on grain facilities. I think this is this is an interesting and new side to the war that we've not really seen before. And let let me explain this. So, to my thinking, yeah, what Russia does with disinformation or to try to shout down opponents and and all that kind of stuff is the classic divert, deny, discredit the information now on discredit they, they, they discredit the source of the information we we saw that earlier on today when i was mentioned belarus talking about poland changing its story after getting its orders from its masters i mean yeah it's just stupid but they just discredit the source we get we get hit by trolls journalists not not just us but you know loads of people get hit by trolls it just discredit try, they try to discredit the source or they just deny it we had earlier on talking about the, the reports of torture. Well, all Russia do is just say, no, we didn't. And that's it. I mean, they've refused to engage even when faced with, with most compelling evidence and, dare I say it, facts. But so they just deny. They'll also divert. So you may remember some months ago, I was quite, quite rightly had, uh, had to present myself yellow pages down the back of the trousers in front of Artis Pabriks, the former Latvian defence minister, when he gave me a bit of a spanking for using the phrase legitimate targets. Um, I, was, I was saying um, the, train, the training of Ukrainian troops in Britain and elsewhere, does that mean that we're, we're legitimate targets? And he quite rightly said, look, there's no legitimate targets here. This whole war is illegal, immoral, unjustified. It's totally illegitimate. It's the wrong framing to talk about legitimate targets. And he was absolutely correct. But just for a moment, let me dip my toe into that into that world. When it comes to attacks on the energy infrastructure, Russia would divert the, the criticism saying, well, that directly leads to um, Ukrainian strength on the battlefield. Therefore, we can we can hit it. It's a legitimate target. We're going to hit the energy infrastructure. We're not attacking civilians. We are attacking Ukraine's war machine. So they will divert the argument there. And then you come on to grain. You come on to grain and the Black Sea deal, 
you can get bent around the axle about the politics of it and and what who's adhering to which clause and subclause this and blah blah blah. But the destruction of the grain silos, you can't divert that. You can't say, "Ha, it's leading to uh, an increase in Ukrainian combat capability." You know, they can't say that. They can't deny it's happening because it because it just is, and we can see it. And they can't discredit the myriad channels through which this this news is reaching us. So, unlike all the the other areas of, of this war, where where Russia have a have an answer as half-assed as it is, they'll have an answer. They've got no answer to this. How do they look the world in the face, in the UN, the global south, anybody, and justify attacking the grain silos and the grain infrastructure and what they're doing here for for food? So we've not yet had any... I mean, they obviously won't volunteer this. They, they won't because they know they can't. They won't volunteer this information. And I've yet to see anyone really put it to them. I'm not going to get on my hobby horse again about the UN. Don't worry, I've just had a nice holiday. I'm not going to get all you know wrapped up on that just yet. It'll be another few weeks before I start ranting about the UN. But you know, wh- who is going to put this to Russia? Why are you attacking the grain infrastructure? Explain to us the logic behind that. And unlike all the others, as I said before, this is the first time in this war. I think I think Russia really will not be able to justify it, which is why they are silent on the subject. But I welcome and I look forward to any comment from Russia just to show up the utter sham of their of their position and the war more generally so keep an eye out well keep an eye out for silence i would suggest thank you very much tom hamish to Bretton gordon would you like to finish today thank you i just like to finish on the african leaders peace deal which w- was buzzing around yesterday and if you covered it i apologize but i just i ha- had a had a look at it and um yeah slightly slightly related to the grain as well because it's that grain that is supposedly going to africa to feed people the poorest in the world but on the on, the african leaders peace deal seems to me have been written by putin there are three key tenets to it and i am oversimplifying it the first bit would be withdrawal of russian troops now it doesn't really go into detail but withdrawal of russian troops to 2014 lines interesting the second bit is the removal of nuclear Russian nuclear weapons from Belarus. Well, if you believe me, there aren't any there anyway. And the third element is the dropping of the indictment of Putin at the International Criminal Court. And that, that really stuck something in me. I hadn't, I hadn't really considered that Putin was that worried about it. But, but he, he obviously is. And he said that he supports this peace deal. So... If the way I look at it, that the Russian, the African leaders' peace deal is that Russian troops draw to 2014 positions, nuclear weapons go out of Belarus, and the indictment of Putin is dropped. It seems to me the, the, the key tenant here is the indictment of Putin. And that makes me feel better that he is really, he really sees that as a major thing. And I think there are many more indictments for him to come. But, um, I think it's something one one will look at as as things move on. I don't think there's a snowball's hell in chance that the Ukrainian, well, unless the Russians do withdraw to 2014 positions, which is the key thing that uh, President Zelensky is 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 that's his his key objective for any any sort of peace deal. But uh, the fact that Putin actually doesn't want to go to the International Criminal Court gives me a little bit of hope. Ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph. 
To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.